Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on September 16th, so we are not taking listener calls at this time. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the seventh program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is who votes, who can't, and who won't. We'll talk about voter participation in marginalized communities, the structural, systemic, and in institutional barriers to voting that some people face, along with the motivational barriers that make it seem hardly worth it to some voters as well. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests, and we've got fabulous guests today. I'm so excited. Um, joining us by Zoom first is Molly and Dana. Molly and is the Penobscot Nation ambassador and a lifelong advocate for tribal rights. She's the first individual to hold the position of Penobscot Nation tribal ambassador. She was appointed by Chief Kirk Francis in September 2017. Welcome, Molly Ann. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Also with us today is Michael Kabidi. Michael is policy counsel at ACLU of Maine, where he advocates, advocates at the state and local level for policy that advances civil rights and liberties for all people in Maine. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Anne. It's an honor to be um, on a panel with such distinguished uh, people. I'm feeling a little awestruck myself. Thank you, Michael. And that includes you. Um, finally, we're pleased to have with us Cheryl Laird. Cheryl is assistant professor of government at Bowdoin College and with Ishmael White, co-author of the recent book, Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. So Maine has one of the highest voter turnout records in the country, consistently in the top five, often among the top one or two. We also have some of the most inclusive election laws in the country. We have no excuse absentee voting. We have same day registration. We have felon enfranchisement among others. But a report published by the League of Women Voters in Maine earlier this year highlighted some differences between the affluent communities like Falmouth, where we have over 85% voter participation, and those in some neighborhoods around Lewiston, for example, that barely break 45% voter turnout, a 40% difference. So I want to put it to Michael first and just ask you to paint in broad brushes what's going on with that. Is It seems as though poverty is a voting rights issue. Is that it? or? Yeah, I would uh, say that poverty is one of the reasons. But when you compare national voting between the uh, white electorate and the black electorate, for example, although the black electorate is poorer in economic terms, um, turnout in the last couple of elections, especially in uh, 2012, was uh, as high as turnout for white voters. And so uh, it's not as simple as the lower on the uh, economic ladder you go, the lower turnout becomes. Um, there are many reasons, uh, not all of which I pretend to know, but um, I think that having recently arrived to the United States um, 
And being an immigrant um, generally means that you feel a uh, lower level of representation. Uh, you aren't as confident that your vote matters, that the uh, government exists to advance your interests. And so not, uh, the emphasis on voting is simply not as high. Um, another reason is that there have been active voter suppression efforts in Maine, like elsewhere. Former Lewiston mayor, uh, disgraced uh, former Lewiston mayor Shane Bouchard, actually sent a letter to uh, Lewistonians in 2017, threatening voters with prosecution for not registering their motor vehicles or obtaining uh, main driver's licenses. Now, this just happened in 2017. Uh, so while there's no disagreement that all drivers in Maine have to comply with motor vehicle laws, there's absolutely nothing in uh, those laws that bear on someone's eligibility to vote. The attempt was an enormous failure. Um, there was a state investigation that turned up absolutely no issues, uh, but it showed clearly uh, just how crafty and nefarious some public officials can be uh, to achieve voter suppression. Cheryl, let me give you a chance to comment on this question too. What, what do you think is behind the disparity? And I, I know I want to talk about, well, I've got a lot to talk about. I'll just let you jump in with what you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, sure. So one of the things to think about, um, and I think Michael speaks to any number of, of things, especially when it comes to things like voter suppression, um, there is nothing inherently right in place that says because you are poor, you would participate in politics. And I think the points that Michael raised are exactly right. Not only do you have people who may not see themselves having political efficacy, which means that political science, we talk about this as internal and external, external efficacy, right? So I feel like I can have an influence on government and I feel like government is responsive to me. And that is often not the case. Um, you also have active voter suppression um, as noted too. Additionally, we have to think about the process of voting, right? And what it means. And in the field, we talk about a voter calculus, right? So the things that people are taking into consideration in their mind in order for them to decide that they're gonna come in and vote. And one of the things that you have to think about for poor communities are things that are gonna be very challenging for them to be able to participate. So this can be a resource deprivation issue. This could be the ability to access the polling place itself like can they actually get out to vote on the day that an election is occurring that may not be possible for them because elector voting is not a national holiday right so it's not as if you get time off of work um, if you are working a low-paid job um, or a low wage position getting that time to be able to go vote becomes a very difficult thing and as much as we're even talking about now in covid um, the importance of doing things like voting by mail that has a cost, right? There is a startup cost for individuals to be able to do this. So, you know, my mother does not live in Maine, she lives in Maryland, but for her to get an absentee ballot is something that I would probably have to help her fill out. It is not something that she's gonna be able to easily do. She lives off of social security, so she does fall into a lower income gap, uh, uh, income bracket. Um, but nonetheless, right, even with time, there is an, a knowledge issue, right, an education issue that can serve as a hindrance as well for participation, let alone um, things like childcare, like how do I vote with kids? Um, <laughs> how do I vote uh, if I don't have a car and the polling place is not within close proximity to my home? Um, how do I vote and, and still be able to do the other things I need to do in the day? So I think there is an underestimation of 
the degree to which poverty and, and poorness is defining for an individual's life and that there's a lot of privilege that comes with being able to participate in government. And often it is very simplified with one person, one vote, but in fact, there's a lot of complexity that we have to doing that. And we don't necessarily ease the process either. I mean, Maine is definitely a state that does a lot more ease. I wish we could see on-site voting like we see in Maine in other states. That's amazing that that happens. Um, but you know, even with that, there are still any number of hurdles that people are facing, especially when you're in a low income bracket. Molly and I saw you nodding on a couple of those things. Why don't you throw in here from the travel perspective? Sure, I'm not sure I can add uh, too much more to, to kind of the basics of things, but I do agree election day should be a national holiday. Uh, I think that the fact that it's not really underscores those differences in, in the classes and the groups and thinking about um, indigenous voting. I think we have the class struggles. We're definitely some of the poorest communities. There's also a level of distrust of indigenous people and the government. So why would, you know, the, the thinking with some people is why would we want to participate in this system with a government that tried to exterminate our ancestors? <laughs> so part of my role uh, and job is, is you know, holding space for those feelings and also communicating and advocating you know a, a lot of our people sacrificed so much so that we could have the right to vote we were one of i think we were the last group in america to get the right to vote so i think that in a lot of the population it's held as very sacred i was looking into some stats to prepare for today and 85 percent of on reservation penobscot nation eligible voters uh, vote usually in the last election. So I was pretty encouraged by that. It's harder to track the off-reservation, but I do think that we've done a good job of, of stressing that, you know, it, you know, while we may distrust the system and have deep roots in that, um, you know, weariness, it, it's, it's definitely important to make our voice heard. So I think there's, when you, when you talk about poverty and, and this, you know, link, I, I think there's a lot more to that for reservation communities. And it is um, when reservation communities have their own polling place, we do see higher turnout. So mm -hmm. Penobscot Nation and Passamaquoddy Tribe have polling places in the reservations and the tribes up, up north do not. And it's harder to track the turnout, but I do think theirs is a little bit lower. You know, I mean, I, as I hear you talk, I'm, I'm wondering, about the motivational barriers that people face. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I think there was one of the articles that I posted online that postulated that people sort of think, you know, why should I? You know, we had a black president, nothing changed, right? Whether I vote or not, nothing really is going to change. You know, so to what extent are people actually making a, sort of a rational assessment of the possible impact that their vote can make and deciding it's not going to make that much difference. I can speak to that specifically because I had a I had a student in one of my classes, in fact, make this statement in my race and ethnicity and politics course. And I was like, <gasps> like clutch the pearls, like aghast by <laughs> this statement in this government class. And she was a government major. And I was like, let's talk about this. Um, because I think you're right. Like if you're living your day to day and you are somebody, especially if you're like a pocketbook voter, like we talk about this in political science, right? This idea of pocketbook voting versus, which means I'm thinking about myself, right? Right, and kind of my day-to-day -day experience and do I see um, 
improvement as a consequence of somebody that I've elected in my day to day, right? Or do I see the nation like more broadly doing better, right? Is another form of assessment, right? Is the economy doing better? So therefore I think we're doing better. But if you're somebody who's in a lower SES bracket. Um, SES bracket being? Socioeconomic status. Thank you. Right? So yep. if, you're, if you're somebody who falls into that, um, which would be people who are impoverished and poverty poor, people who are working poor, right? So work 40 hours a week, but maybe don't make more uh, than just above the poverty line itself, um, that you are going to be potentially making a calculation where uh, you may not be seeing the day-to-day -day shifts that you would want to see for what you think is going to be the resource of time and investment that you're making now to participate in the election. But what I said to my student was, well, it, it does kind of, it does matter. I mean, there is some rationality to the broader set if we're thinking about even the presidential election, but like there's a lot of things on the ballot, right? Like you're not just going to vote for one thing, you're voting for a series of things in any one election. One of that includes who's gonna be in the office at the top. And in fact, many of the things that are further down ballot will be very much affected by who's at the top of the ballot. So even if that person doesn't come out with a policy that immediately changes your socioeconomic status or improves that condition for you, you would want somebody in office potentially who could be supportive of or against something that you would benefit from that is further down ballot. Um, and I don't think we often talk to people about voting in this way, even with the campaigns themselves, they've primarily focused on discussing the candidate at the top. But for instance, we are also in the midst of collecting a census. Like 2020 is the year of crazy. We just doing everything right now. So like 2020 is we're also collecting a census. That census data will be used for the next 10 years. Like it will serve as the baseline for so many policies that are to come. And yet it is not being highly discussed in the way that it needs to be. And these same populations that have issues with voting are the same populations that are also less likely to fill out the census. Um, so who is at the top of that ballot when you select it is going to be very important then to the kinds of allocations that you get, the kinds of financial things, reapportionment of house seats, like I mean all kinds of stuff will happen. So your vote is beyond simply a particular candidate. It has impacts on numerous levels and we should think about it that way. I want to give Michael and Molly a chance to weigh in on this um rational decision-making question, but we'll take a little break first. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is who votes, who can't, and who won't. Our guests this afternoon are Molly and Dana, Penobscot Nation Ambassador, Michael Kabidi, Policy Counsel at ACLU of Maine, and Cheryl Laird, Assistant Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. This program was pre-recorded last Wednesday. No listener calls are being taken right now. So what about that, Michael? You go first. The way I respond to someone who says that voting doesn't, doesn't change my life and therefore I'm not gonna vote is voting without organizing is like coffee without caffeine. <laughs> I'm a coffee, I drink coffee every day. I, my ancestors are Ethiopian. Uh, we we uh, invented coffee actually. <laughs> And the last president to uh, sign a raft of progressive bills um, was probably Richard Nixon. He established the environmental uh, policy, the EPA. He signed the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, Noise Control Act. Uh, lots of bills that you wouldn't expect from a president like Nixon. And that's because there was a social movement 
that forced him to do that. Um, politicians, uh, you know, shouldn't be fetishized, nor should voting be fetishized. It should absolutely happen, but to um, expect the politician to deliver everything is uh, to totally misunderstand the way progressive change happens. Mm -hmm. What do you want to say to this motivational barrier question, Balian? Yeah, I, I hear this sometimes too, this kind of real apathy toward the whole thing. And I throw my hands up, I'm, I'm going to keep going to work and you know, it doesn't really matter. And I think 2020 is a time when it's easier to impress on people that it absolutely does matter. So we have the, the policy areas that you two have articulated perfectly. We also have the social ramifications as you know, as a brown person moving about in spaces with Donald Trump supporters, I feel at risk a lot more than when he was not president. Um, I feel that racists and bigots are emboldened. When I drive through Old Town, Maine, and every house has a Trump flag, um, you know, it, it makes me itchy. It, it makes me feel not great. I have two children, uh, and I feel like you know, it, it's dangerous to have this man as president right now at a very real level that I haven't experienced before in my lifetime. Um, you know, I, yeah, I guess that's the, the plainest way to say it. I feel safer when he's not president, being an indigenous woman, woman of color. And I also think this week seeing these, you know, horrific, examples of climate change with these fires and these hurricanes, uh, the planet, the environment, Mother Earth cannot take four more years of Donald Trump and his administration. Uh, we need, you know, I, I hear people, you know, the left and the right wing are on the same bird and, you know, lesser of two evils with, with Joe Biden. And I just think, you know, that there's a clear path here that is better for the earth and that's all of our survival so i get a little fired up in this election cycle when i hear you know oh it doesn't make any difference because there's very obvious ways your vote does make a difference this time and, and even if you're not crazy about joe biden um at least taking a stand and saying you know no more destruction of mother earth no more oppression of vulnerable groups you know it's not just racial it's lbg LGBTQ plus people, um, it, it's women's reproductive rights that, you know, there's, there's a lot of things I can think of right now where voting, you know, will absolutely make a big difference. Well, in Maine, given that our laws are pretty inclusive and um, I don't know, I mean, Michael, you gave a good example a minute ago of how it may seem good on the surface, but that doesn't mean the voter suppression is not going on. So what obstacles to voting do people in marginalized communities still face and have some of those actually been exacerbated under COVID restrictions? Cheryl mentioned that absentee voting is great, but there are barriers to entry there too. Yeah, that's a great question, Anne. I'll uh, start by mentioning the fact that Maine, together with Vermont, is one of two states that not only enfranchises everyone with felony convictions, but allows them to vote from jail and prison. But when you scratch the surface, the uh, Marshall Project just, just did a study in Vermont and Maine, Maine uh, prisons and jails to find out what turnout was there. When you scratch the surface, you find out that even though you essentially have a captive audience that um, can request absentee ballots and vote, voter turnout is extremely low among people who are incarcerated. And um, 
that is the result of many things. One is that when you vote from a jail or a prison in Maine, you vote not for the for the candidates that are running in the district where you're incarcerated, but for the candidates that are running in the district where you had a last permanent address. Um, and um, that in itself creates a huge bureaucratic hurdle. Another is a lot of information about elections um, gets transmitted to people who are incarcerated through cable news. And uh, cable news is not often the most uh, reliable or responsible source of information about elections. Uh, another are the socioeconomic reasons that Professor Laird earlier uh, mentioned. Um, but there are other barriers as well. For instance, not every town um, a that has 5,000 or more people in Maine has uh, ballot drop-off locations. We don't have online voter registration in Maine. We, uh, it's not entirely clear whether ballots received after election day, even though they're postmarked for before election day, will be counted. And um, those are just some, uh, you know, in addition to the earlier mentioned efforts around voter suppression, some of the barriers to voting in May. Cheryl, do you want to add to this too? And especially in terms of the ways in which I mean, I know COVID has hit some of our BIPOC communities a lot harder than it has others. Um, ha have the COVID restrictions that, or I should say protocols, have the COVID protocols around voting enhanced voter participation in these communities or made it tougher, would you say? Um, I think it's made it tougher. I mean, if, if we're thinking about Maine, I think Michael brings up a, a lot of good points, right, about these drop-offs and the complexity that comes now with a different form of voting, right? I mean, getting people even conditioned to the normal form of voting that we typically do, which is going to a polling place and going to vote, um, is something that a lot of people, like a large portion of our population, don't participate in, right? Like, um, and so now to add a another piece to that puzzle that requires somebody to be able to have the resource of time and the planning that that requires. Like I have to put in an application in advance of this thing that is going to happen some months away from now. Um, and I have to know to do that. And I have to have the ability to do that. I have to have the internet access to potentially do that to even print the form out or be able to go get the form from a location. Um, do I have the means to be able to do that? Uh, and so without targeted efforts, either by campaigns to mobilize voters or by organizations to be there on the ground in these resource um, deprived communities, right, I think that they will definitely have some challenges. Now, some of these communities, though, have histories of facing challenges that are um, uniquely situated with them before, specifically say it's for the African American community. It is not as a voter suppression, voting efforts, denial of opportunity to the franchise is not something that has been very common for this group, right? Like they are fully aware of, of, of what that looks like and have built in a lot of the resources to do that through the communities that they have, right? So these are the institutions within those communities, black churches, um, black organizations that come in and do that work. But now because of COVID, some of that effort, which would typically be face-to-face, in-person contact is gone, 
right? So how do you mobilize a church base when you were doing something like souls to the polls, when you no longer have in-person church attendance? How do you do um, grassroots organizing in terms of door-to-door -door registration or door when going to someone's home now becomes a, a danger in terms of internet, uh, in terms of contact um, with them um, in, in an interaction? Uh, so they, they have some unique challenges, let alone what has been thought about less, which is I think because we have not been seeing the um, discussion of COVID in the way that we saw it when it first started, especially with New York having such severe cases, um, that people are dealing with the effects of COVID. I mean, in Maine, we have low numbers, but on a national level, I mean, there are populations and locations and those are often um, Black uh, per people of color, indigenous populations have to lock down their communities to protect themselves, like that those create new challenges as well. Um, and we haven't quite truly understood the impact that that's going to have. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Maine is a mostly white state. And um, I, I wondered and wanted to ask specifically if you thought there was a correlation between the fact that we've been demographically homogeneous that way and the fact that our voting laws are quite permissive because states that have a more fraught racial history tend to be the ones that have more Jim Crow. What do you think? Uh, yes. <laughs> I do think that that matters. Um, I think there is a willingness to have a little bit more trust in the electorate. Uh, I think when in the past we've seen the denial of access to the franchise, it often was an unknown of what will these people do. So when women get access to the franchise or white women get it with the 19th Amendment, people were like, well, they, they, don't, they don't really know what they're doing. Their husbands need to tell them what to do. Um, they don't have an idea of what's going on. And even then there's like a racial piece to it, right? Because it's white women getting franchise and not women of color included in that group. Then you have expansion of the franchise and it becomes uh, more with African-Americans. Then you eventually have indigenous populations. Um, and then we still have felon disenfranchisement. But I think one thing that makes people feel really assured and more trusting in this system is that there is some homogeneity in the racial makeup. So now in the, the identities of people are less concerning about kind of the what ifs that they may not know. Um, and now you're down to like partisan politics, class politics, um, that is still a major part of Maine. And even race politics are still part of it, but even that group, those groups that would fall into that are small in number enough that I don't think people find it um, as problematic that they would put a, as many impediments in place as we see in places where you have larger populations. You want to comment on that, Michael? Sure. Um, you know, the federal government um, ostensibly gave the right to vote to Indigenous people, to Native Americans in the 20s, and then the federal Supreme Court in the 40s. But Maine did not extend the right to vote to Indigenous people in Maine until 1967. And uh, you know, that's the same year as the Loving v. Virginia decision, which uh, banned uh, states from prohibiting interracial marriages. Um, I don't want to suggest that Maine has been free of uh, uh, racist policy or uh, hasn't had a racist and discriminatory history uh, just because some of its voter laws are a bit more progressive than the rest of the country. It's true. We approved ranked choice voting before any state through a referendum in 2016. That definitely happened. 
Um, but we also had a governor uh, and a party chair, Charles Webster, who falsely claimed that busloads of black people were coming in to Maine from other states and illegally voting. They wrote the playbook for the current president. And so, yes, we did not disenfranchise uh, people convicted of felonies during the Jim Crow era, as every other state was doing that. That didn't happen here, probably for demographic reasons. At the same time, Maine might mistreat uh, indigenous people more than any other state in the country. And so the, both truths might be uh, uh, part of Maine's history. That was an opening for you, Malin, if you want it. Sure, I, I definitely agree with, with the other panelists that the clear answer to this question is yes. Um, and I, I do appreciate all the comments about, you know, the, the tangled web of tribal state relations. Um, it definitely, you know, my grandmother was born in 1938. So thinking about how much of her life she lived not considered a full citizen of the state of Maine uh, gives me a lot of pause when I think about all of this. And, and that's not that long ago. So, um, you know, there, there's records from the late 60, 60s when Maine tribes first got the right to vote where Penobscot people were going to Old Town because that was a polling place for the state election and people in line with them were saying, you know, go back to Indian Island and vote in your own elections. Um, you don't belong here voting with us. And, and like I said, I mean, my parents were alive. That, that was not that long ago. So it's a lot of, of things we don't see, I think, you know, so there might not be systems um, in place through policy, keeping people down on the surface, but those legacies of oppression are very, very hard to unravel. Yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Molly and Dana, Penobscot Nation Ambassador along with Michael Kabidi, Policy Counsel for the ACLU of Maine, and Cheryl Laird, Assistant Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. Our topic today is who votes, who can't, and who won't. This show was pre-recorded on Wednesday, September 16th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. You know, a couple shows ago on the Democracy Forum, we talked with um, Amy Freed and Don Moynihan about some political science research by Moynihan and Susan Mettler and others that talks about how policy feedback affects demotivate people from participating. Like if you're um, somebody who uses a government service and the process of accessing that government service makes you feel bad all the time. Um, that you feel disrespected by the government and then less likely to participate. Where if you have a government program like the GI Bill that makes you feel good, makes you feel lifted up, makes you feel like you're being presented an opportunity, it creates a huge civic participation boon. Are, I see you nodding, Cheryl. Are you familiar with that research? And do you think that plays out in Maine as well? 
Uh, I, I am familiar with it and I'm familiar with other work on this as well. I mean, basically you have to think about all these touch points that people have with state power, right? And what that does to inform them of how they should view government structures and, and bodies as well as um, how responsive they think those structures are to them and people like them uh, and also trust, right? Like, so for communities that are particularly marginalized, trust in government is a huge thing, right? So even African-Americans who are participating in large numbers um, that exceed what maybe be expected of them. What we know though, is that trust in government is very low. Like they do not trust government. Um, and, and I think for communities of color, this is something that they often are struggling with because of these points of interaction that they have with the state. Um, and a lot of times those can be negative and it not only can be these policy moments of like, you know, government services um, or things that they're using in terms of resources. It also can be police contact. So Veshla Weaver has additional work on this to talk about contact with the carceral street as well as Tracy Birch out of Northwestern. And both of them note to the impact that not only does the negative contact with carceral state have on you, but that that can start as easily as like a stop and frisk, right? This can be as a traffic ticket or traffic violation. Um, so any of those times where those moments are contact are seen as me having contact with government and that's how somebody is viewing this, which is what it is, right? That that can be very much uh, de-incentivizing, right? Can, it can lead to a, a, an unwillingness to really engage government because one may feel like the government does not respect them or care about what they're dealing with. It can also have social network effects, right? So that one individual having that interaction for communities where you might be segregated either on an economic dimension, racial dimension, or even the combination of both means that that's, if that is the day-to-day -day interaction you're having and others are also having it too, Right, that that will be the kind of understanding that you might have amongst a group of people, um, even in a family home, one person could be having a negative interaction with the state and everybody in the home then views the state in a negative way. Um, so it really is something that we often don't consider because those touch points seem kind of benign, I guess, when we think of state power, but they are very defining for individuals and often their earliest and most frequent contact with state above anything else, right? Like the president is kind of at a distance, honestly, when we think about our day-to-day -day, and more than likely it's the traffic violations, it's passing a police officer when you're at a store, it's, you know, it's these kinds of day-to-day -day things that really define state power for people. Could it be even in school with your resource officers? And absolutely, absolutely. If you are in public schools, um, those interactions there then with the, the school government, right? School, um, school boards, it could be resource officer contact. I mean, and so when we see even in Portland, right, the pushback about having the resource officers in schools, I mean, that's a big thing because those moments become a defining moment for young people about their government interaction with the state, right? And if you have these interactions with a resource officer for the protection of the school, those interactions will define for individuals how they see government, right? Um, and if it is something that is being practiced in a way to socialize young people into, uh, um, like, you know, they talk about the, the prison, school to prison pipeline, right? Like, the, like the, that, that is something that you are creating a socialization with, and, and that is not necessarily effective, right, for trying to increase civics and civic engagement. Michael, do you have a comment on this in terms of, um how to create and how we're not creating a sense of shared investment in our government? I have uh, lots of thoughts, but the one that 
rises to the surface for me is that in my experience uh, as an activist and as uh, an advocate for my employer, a sense of investment doesn't um, result from the government creating good policy. It actually results from me trying to change the government's bad policy. Uh, and so in a sense, you know, hope and uh, good feelings about the government result from action. They don't cause action. And um, that's because whenever I've tried to pressure the government, I've met some quite wonderful people in my local community. And uh, those people are very inspiring. They're part of a collective project of trying to improve the quality of life for everyone in our community, especially the most marginalized people. What I would suggest to listeners is if you feel disenfranchised, disaffected, pushed away by your local or state government, that's precisely the reason to get involved. Believe it or not, you'll actually feel more hopeful, even though you might not get what you want. Most of the things that I've asked for as part of a group of advocates, really in any advocacy effort, I haven't gotten, we failed. And yet we've come out on the other side dramatically more invested in uh, the government, much more knowledgeable about how it works and uh, more excited about the future of our institutions. See, I wanna talk a minute about, you know, whether Maine lives in a uh, voting bubble. You know, we've got same day registration. We don't have photo ID. We've got no excuse absentee balloting. We've got ranked choice voting. We've got all this stuff, but, um, you know, what, what does it mean to live in a federated form of government where lots of other states don't ha have those things? And how does that affect us here in Maine when other states are more restrictive and suppressing voters more actively, if I may suggest they are? Was that a stumper? <laughs> Go ahead, Cheryl. I mean, um, so I'm newer to Maine, so I, I feel like I, I almost want to like nod to the other panelists and their thoughts on this as well. I would, I would assume that potentially it would mean that um, some of the fire there that one would have to go and pressure about some of these issues on a broader scale may not be there, right? Because we are living in a space where here locally and here in the state, like there is a bit more access to it. Um, but I, I do see active work going on. So I think um, people may be underestimating the ease at which they are able to potentially get things done when they are in the majority. That is just not the same for other communities, right? And that there is much more challenges, even here in Maine, um, to get things done, right? And so I think often too, what it does is it potentially makes people believe that, you know, we should kind of get a pat on the back like we're doing the good stuff, we're doing the right things and, and underestimate the problematic things that are going on and that clearly certain populations are gonna be dealing with that, right? So for instance, we should be doing things to really talk about the impact of COVID on Maine. However, people might respond and think, no, you know, what's great about the fact that we had ranked choice voting, we did all these things, we have a governor in office that really took a proactive effort to try to minimize the spread and minimize issues that come from COVID. Yet, we know that there are certain populations in Maine that are disproportionately dealing with infection from COVID, and that hasn't been addressed. Um, and so if people are just resting on, we have all this progressive stuff and make us more um, aware of these things and we, we try to address all that, 
all that still doesn't address the fact that black populations in Maine are more likely to have COVID. What are we doing to get them testing? What are we doing to provide them with resources? What are we doing to assist them with what's happening? That will get overlooked. Um, yep. because what will be heralded is the progress that's made on these other fronts. Yeah, so I hear what you're saying. Don't, yeah, we can't be complacent about what we've got. We have to be attuned to where we still have so much to overcome. I hear you. Yeah, but it, it sort of leads me to the question, like we've been lobbying, you know, from the League of Women Voters, maybe the ACLU has been too, you know, lobbying our federal delegation about, um, and the National Voting Rights Act restoration and um, the pre reinstating in some form of the preclearance because, you know, other states have taken that loophole and just driven a gigantic truck of voter suppression through it. So, I mean, I'm, I, like I'm sort of getting at why should we in Maine care if somebody else has a preclearance requirement? You, you know what I mean? Go ahead, Michael. Sure. So Maine uh, you know, has never been a pre pre-clearance state, but so you're suggesting that elections elsewhere matter in Maine. They absolutely yeah. do. Yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. They absolutely do. Um, federal appropriations matter to Maine. Maine is a relatively poor state, and um, Maine is uh, uh, the oldest state, has the highest average age of any state in the United States, which means a lot of the people in Maine rely to a large extent on uh, Social Security and uh, Medicare and Medicaid. And those are the three pillars of the federal uh, social safety net. Every effort has to be made to make sure those programs and uh, other future programs like them are solvent. If that doesn't happen, then Maine uh, will, Mainers will suffer. Uh, Maine will uh, get reduced revenue. But also, if we had leadership at the federal level, Maine wouldn't have suffered as big uh, an economic hit as a result of the pandemic. The United States is number one in the world, as you all know, as everyone knows, for a number of people infected and dead from COVID-19. Um, the biggest sector of Maine's economy is tourism. And so we depend on healthy people from other parts of the country coming here and spending their money for uh, a big chunk of our economy. And so Maine's economy depends very much on the health of the rest of the country, the health of the federal government, and so, for instance, the uh, recently in Florida, voters approved by a huge, huge margin uh, enfranchisement of people with felony convictions. The uh, 11th Circuit, which uh, Trump appointed a majority of the judges there, uh, created several technicalities to halt that law in its tracks um, and um, essentially reinstitute felon disenfranchisement in uh, Florida but through uh, various technicalities. You know, are there efforts underway to raise money to pay those fines? I've been curious are. about this. There Would you like to are. plug anybody right now? You know, I'll... Uh, or send I'll me something. To, we'll put it I on will. our I'll website send you later. Yeah, um, there are groups. Um, what's astonishing about Florida, I mean, there are some people who don't even know how much they owe. It's actually yeah. difficult to find out how much you owe. But yeah, one of the hurdles that the 11th Circuit set up is you can't vote unless you've paid all the fines and fees and debts associated with criminal proceedings that you are a part of. Uh, and that, there's a group that's raised more than $3 million over the last few weeks uh, to pay for people's um, felony-related fees and fines so that they can vote. 
I, I mean, this is sort of interesting to me because, you know, I, from my point of privilege, I'd been working on election law for a long time before I realized that incarcerating black people was in order to stop them from voting, not the other way around. Do you know what I mean? And um, I, it, it reminded me now of the current conversation that's going on around evictions and um, in eviction moratoriums and like, are, are there efforts to let people be evicted so they'll be too discombobulated to vote? I mean, is that a thing or am I just making that up? Cheryl? I see your lips moving. I don't know if you I have mean, an answer or not. I was like, well, um, <laughs> so I'm thinking about it. I mean, I, I will say, um, I will say this, housing, race, and what it has been done to suppress particular population in the United States has a long history, right? So this goes back to the denial of people to access homeownership, right? With our FHA and VA lending that came out of the New Deal policies as following World War II. Um, this can be seen with the restrictive covenants that's been using housing deeds. This can be seen with the housing that had to be passed in the 1960s to protect against discrimination based on race. So the idea now that we slow or move at a snail's pace to deal with um, evictions that are definitely affecting communities of color um, and not do as much to ensure the moratoriums are in place. And also even think about these moratoriums in that when they are over, can these people actually pay back the money that is owed and required to do so? Um, that that would have some electoral implications. Yeah, that doesn't feel that far-fetched to me to, to try to make that argument. Um, there's a lot of things going on there as well. I think it's, a, it's not only is it coming with an electoral season, but I also think you are in a culture in the United States, right, that sees um, people being down on their luck or having financial strain as an individualized issue, right? It's something that you have not done. You managed to mess up. And so you now have to deal with the consequence. But in the case of what we're dealing with now with the COVID crisis, this actually has nothing to do with individuals' ability. It has nothing to do with their willpower or desire to work. This has everything to do with the managed crisis and what was allowed to happen and the spread of the disease. Um, and people don't speak about this in that manner. Therefore, it just kind of gets plugged in as these are evictions. And it's like, no, but they erect consequence, right, of, of this broader social issue, economic issue, political issue, and the failure of management on this issue. Um, so I, I do think that there's something about that because the populations that will be most affected are low-income populations. They will be community color. They will be those that have probably been the most ravaged by COVID-19. Um, displacement um, is, I mean, to think about that in your voting calculus, obviously if you're a displaced individual, I mean, how do you get an absentee ballot? Right, like how do you even go to register? How do you bring proof of address? if you need to use a utility bill, if you don't have a place to live because you're in a car. So right. I'm just so gonna, I'm just gonna plug that in Maine, homeless people can register to vote and vote. I mean, that's the law. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm, I want people who are in that situation to know that they have that right if they press for it. So, sorry, Cheryl. Yeah, no, and that's, and I think we need more policies like this. We need to really think about what it looks like when someone is a big that look like, and what does that mean for them to be able to have access to a, a voice to with the fact that they're dealing with eviction and have a government respond to those kinds of concerns? And I don't think we think about that. And that's a similar problem that we even have with the census. Yeah. 
You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Molly and Dana, Penobscot Nation Ambassador, Michael Kabidi, Policy Counsel for the ACLU of Maine, and Cheryl Laird, Assistant Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. This program was pre-recorded last Wednesday. No listener calls are being taken at this time. Uh, Michael, I think you wanted to get a word in edgewise there, so go ahead. I appreciate it, thank you. Um, I wanted to uh, uh, suggest that you know, voting is absolutely not a silver bullet. So there are countries with very high voter turnout, like Brazil, which elect leaders that are enemies of indigenous rights, enemies of uh, ecological health, enemies of uh, broad-based uh, social and economic improvement. Um, and so we have to be careful not to fetishize voting. Um, one of the uh, uh, you know, things that's been happening in the United States for decades is uh, the concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. You know, a century ago, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said, you can have democracy or you can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, you can't have both. And so um, voting without a raft of uh, policies that improve the social and economic condition of the average person um, is uh, to return to my earlier metaphor, like coffee without caffeine. It just yeah. won't wake you up. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, do you want to comment on this? And then we're going to um, be almost out of time. We'll go for one last round after you weigh in on this question. Sure. Can you repeat the exact question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it started out asking about how some of these policies are enacted intentionally, you know, like evictions and, um, and, and making certain crimes felonies and disproportionately falling on, um, on racial minorities. How, what, you know, how much of that is done intentionally to keep people from voting? Gotcha. Um, yeah, I would agree with, with everything that's been said. And I also heard today that the moratoriums on um, utilities being shut off, will that'll be over on November 1st. So talk about cutting it close. Um, and, and that, of course, we'll see disproportionately affect all these vulnerable groups that, that we've been talking about. And, um, and I think a lot of the, the civic engagement and the activity around the election this year is very hectic and chaotic and um, it, it, you know, with everything else we all have going on, it, it certainly is overwhelming and it's a lot. And, and I do think that um, a lot of times the powers that be, absolutely, they do things intentionally. Um, you know, they absolutely disenfranchise uh, incarcerated people and um, yeah, and I, I think I really like what Michael is saying about not fetishizing this process. I, I think it's super important to vote, but look at all the good work we've gotten done in the last four years um, against very high odds. And, and that's, that is civic engagement uh, outside of voting. You know, that's caring about your communities and advocating. And uh, I was thinking about a previous question too about the, the laws in Maine. And I uh, was thinking, you know, about how 
we have it fairly good here, uh, so why should we care about the rest of the country? And I was thinking about, you know, Maine is the first state in the nation that has passed a law to ban Native American mascots in schools. That's amazing. It's great. It's something I worked very hard on for 20 years of my life. Uh, Maine also is having a very hard time amending the 1980 Settlement Act that would truly uh, restore sovereign, inherent sovereignty to tribal nations. And that battle has been going on for, for a very long time, but it's really heated up recently. And, um, you know, not to take away from the significance of the mascot bill and the Indigenous Peoples Day bill, but when you get down to, to what's going on on the ground and some of these conversations that we're having with lawmakers right now, you don't always know what's going on um, under the surface. So I feel like, you know, Maine might have pretty good voting conditions on paper, but, but we don't really know what's actually going on all the time. Well, that's a, a segue to the last round of comments for today. We're kind of running out of time, but I want to give you each a, a minute or so to make a uh, parting shot. And um, Michael, maybe I'll let you go first. Just take a minute or two to sum it up. Sure. Um, you, you mentioned evictions earlier. Um, evictions are a symptom of inequality. And um, there's an excellent book on the topic titled Evicted by Matthew Desmond, um, where he went to uh, Milwaukee and spent uh, years living with uh, low-income people and um, studying their day-to-day -day life. And there's a stunning line in the book. He says, black men are locked in, black women are locked out because evictions disproportionately affect uh, African-American women in the city of Milwaukee. Um, the fact is whether intentional or not, the uh, mass impoverishment of the United States as a result of um, everything from union busting to uh, um, removing the barrier between investment and uh, uh, retail banking to uh, slashing um, funding for the social safety net, all of these things have made it so that a larger and larger share of people in the United States live just on the edge of survival. And uh, whether intentional or not, that has the effect of suppressing the vote. Yep. Uh, and so the vote alone won't ensure that everyone lives in uh, dignity and enjoys prosperity. But um, the vote is certainly an important part of that. And Thank you, Michael. I'd like to leave listeners with that impression. Thank you. Cheryl, just take a minute to give us your final thought. Yeah, I would say marginalized populations, particularly with a lot that create hindrance for them to be able to participate with voting. And in political science, we talk about levels of participation in politics and voting is seen as like the lowest level of participation, but one that someone's able to easily access. And we know that that's not the case, let alone all the other ways of participation that will engage. Um, so I think people need to really um, spend time recognizing that this is a challenge. A lot of communities, there's a lot of privilege being in a state like Maine with the way that we have access to the franchise and a lot of ways that it's not um, accessible. And if you can do those efforts to make sure that that's, that's possible for people, that's just the beginning of all of the types of participation that people engage in trying to speak on behalf of their communities and, and have responsive government. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, 
just uh, 30, like 30 seconds, Molly, and I know I'm cutting you short here, but give us your final takeaway for today. No problem. I really enjoyed this and this was an excellent uh, panel to hear. Thank you uh, so much for having me. And I just feel, I guess the, you know, I, I think a lot of times we hear right now, America's having a reckoning over race, over poverty, over a lot of things. And a lot of us already knew that these things existed and, and we're not reckoning at all. <laughs> right. We're digging in and, and keep doing the work. So uh, I appreciate all of your efforts. So thank you. Thank, thank you all so much. We are now out of time. Um, thank you to our guests this afternoon, Molly and Dana, who just spoke, the Penobscot Nation Ambassador, Michael Kabidi, the Policy Counsel for ACLU of Maine, and Cheryl Laird, Assistant Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. We're streaming live at WERU.org. Our website for the League of Women Voters is lwvme.org. You can find more information about this topic, including links from some of the referenced articles and um, websites to the show. And you can learn more about other shows in this series there. Subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org or email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Coming up next, Counterspin, followed by Between the Lines on your community radio station, WERU-FM.